Welcome to Bethel World Outreach Church. Our values are devotion, diversity, and discipleship. Devotion through honoring God by trusting His Word, praying, and worshiping together. Diversity by embracing God's heart for every nation. And discipleship by helping others follow Jesus. So join us as we're reaching a city to touch the world. Well, I won't uh, belabor the points. Uh, I'm really excited for the word tonight coming from the one and only Heather Heck. So as we're in part four of the Esther series, uh, can we please welcome to the platform Heather Heck all the way from Colorado. I'll get that, I'll get that pulled for you. Hey, hey, Bethel family. It's good to be home. I see a lot of new faces, which excites me. Before we jump in the word today, let me do just a little brief introduction so you know who the heck I am. (laughs) That one's for free. (laughs) Actually, this is home because for me, this is where my journey all began. It was here at Bethel 14 years ago. I walked into this church, a broken woman, but I left free. See, I had been raised in a Christian home. I was a good Christian kid, but I had somehow always equated following Jesus to following the rules. And no matter how I tried, it always felt like somehow I just couldn't measure up. So by the time I went to college, I made the decision to start walking away from God. That led me further away than I ever thought I would be. I started doing things I never thought I would do. By the time I was 21 years old, I was a crack addict. 27 years old, I became a single mom. At 28 years old, I was in a drinking and driving accident that killed an elderly couple. Before the age of 30, I would be in prison. By all accounts, my life looked worthless. It looked like there would be no hope. But my mama, who's here today, she dragged me to a church service here at Bethel. And I heard the gospel message that day, not for the first time, but it was the first time I'd actually heard it with my heart and not just my head. And I realized that in that moment, the weight that I was feeling was the weight of sin and shame and death. That was the very weight that Jesus had taken to the cross so that I could be set free. I had an encounter with Jesus that day that forever changed the course of my life, and I want you to hear this. I didn't clean myself up to get to him. He met me exactly where I was. He reached down into that mess and rescued me. Jesus didn't die to make bad men good. Jesus died so that dead men might live. And I was a dead woman walking, but Jesus rescued me and brought me out of death and into life. Now, I tell you all that to say, thank you, Bethel, because it was here. It was here where I met Jesus. It was here where I was equipped and empowered. It was this church that cast vision for me that I didn't have the faith to see. It was this church that sent me out to do ministry. In 2010, I became the first single mom convicted felon to ever work as a full-time campus minister. I wouldn't be here if it wasn't for this church. So thank you. Thank you for your prayers, your generosity. Thank you for being committed to reaching lost people like me. You really are reaching a city to touch the world. I do want to give a quick kind of update about what God has been doing. I think I have a few pictures. My son, Jonah, and I, my son is 15 years old. If you've known us for a while, then you can see that I am actively shrinking. (laughs) 
Y'all pray for me because he's literally eating me out of a house at home. Jonah and I joined our first church plant, our first Every Nation church plant in Denver, the first plant in that entire region. We've been there for a year. The interesting thing is that before our team went to plant this church, everyone told our pastors and our team, don't do it. Denver's not the place that you want to plant a church. In fact, we had other churches and pastors tell us that Denver is the place where church planters go to die. That's encouraging, right? But you know, as I begin to think about it, I realize that it, that's the call. That's the call to follow Jesus. It is a call to die because unless a seed falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it will multiply itself. And I think I have a few pictures you can scroll through to show you what that multiplication looks like. We have actively planted four campus ministry chapters in the Denver area, three downtown Denver, one in Boulder, Colorado. You can go to the next slide, just scroll through them. But I want you to see God can and will move in hard places. In one of the most unchurched cities in the U.S., God is raising up a generation of next generation leaders, students who are passionate, who love Jesus. God is moving. Amen. Before uh, we jump into the word, I'm super excited to preach on Esther. She's one of my favorite heroines in the Bible. Let me just take a moment and pray. Is that all right? Father, I thank you that you are moving and breathing here tonight. God, thank you that you are breathing on every dead, dry place. God, would you give us eyes to see, ears to hear, hearts to receive what it is you're saying tonight? Would you use me, God, one who's deeply flawed, to lift up and point to the one who's greater, King Jesus? Amen. All right, so we're continuing on in our story in Esther. How many of you have actually been here for this series? A few of y'all. I am so excited to be able to preach on this story, one of my favorite heroes. And just to catch you up a little bit, if you haven't been here, this is the story about a young woman and her people who faced an impossible situation. The Jews, God's chosen people, have been scattered and dispersed throughout all of Persia. They are living as outsiders, exiles, religious minorities in what was a very hostile, secular, pagan culture. And here is this young woman named Esther. She's a young, marginalized, orphan girl who's living with her cousin Mordecai. He's taking care of her. And through a series of crazy events, Esther is thrown into the king's harem, which would be the modern-day equivalent to sex trafficking. Sorry, I can't sugarcoat that. At this point, Esther has lost everything. She's lost her family. She's lost her freedom. And now she's lost her innocence. And yet, in the midst of all of that pain, she's somehow miraculously elevated and given the position of queen. Now, like every good story, ours has a villain. Our villain is a man named Haman. Haman is a royal official who has been elevated to the second most powerful person in the Persian Empire. The king has decreed that out of recognition to Haman that everyone, when they see him, should bow down. One by one, everybody begins to bow down, everyone except for one man, Mordecai, Esther's cousin. 
He refuses to bow down. He refuses to bow down to worship any man or system of man. And as a result, Haman gets enraged. Haman comes up with this plot to not only have Mordecai killed, but to completely annihilate all of the Jews. Mordecai overhears this entire plan. Mordecai begins to weep, he begins to mourn, and he goes to Esther and he begs her to go to the king on behalf of her people. Now Esther is just a young woman, and up until this point she hasn't had an easy life by any means. She has been dr- she's been thrown into this harem, which in a sense is a bunch of young women whose sole purpose is to pleasure the king. Now, the king has a bit of a reputation. He's known for being kind of a drunken lunatic. In fact, he's had his former wife kicked out and stripped of her title because she refused to be objectified by the king and his drunken buddies. Now, Esther, she has found favor with the king, and she's been elevated to queen, but make no mistake, this isn't a fairy tale story. Esther knows that her position in the palace and her life are not secure, and now her people are facing annihilation. This is a pivotal moment in Esther's life. Esther commits to go. She tells Mordecai these famous words, I'll go to the king, and if I perish, I perish. But before Esther goes and approaches the king, she prays and she fasts for three days. And she asked her community, her people, to do the same. And as she begins to pray, something begins to happen. God doesn't change her circumstance, although he could have. Instead, God changes her. And Bethel, I believe that's what happens when we begin to pray. That's how God loves to move. We pray for God to change things out there, but many times God is more concerned about changing us. Could we be the answer to our own prayer? I've titled this message this, we need more than thoughts and prayers. Called to action. I know that this is that cliche statement that we love to throw up every time something like terrible happens in the world. You're in my thoughts and prayers. But Bethel, we are called to be a people of action. Faith without works is dead. See, Esther begins to pray and something begins to happen. As she prays, conviction turns into courage. As she prays, her resolve is followed by steps of action. Say action. We're going to pick up the story in Esther chapter 5. We're going to start in verses 1 through 5. Are y'all ready to fast forward through a lot of chapters tonight? Are you ready? I don't hear y'all. See, where I'm from, in Denver, we have this saying, we say participation is better than observation. So I need y'all to talk to me, otherwise you're going to get tired of hearing my voice, and I'm going to get tired of hearing my voice, all right? Are y'all ready? All right. Esther chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. We're going to start there. It says, on the third day, Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the palace in front of the king's hall. The king was sitting on his royal throne in the hall facing the entrance. When he saw Queen Esther standing in the court, he was pleased with her and held out to her the gold scepter that was in his hand. So Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter. The king asked, what is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? Even up to half the kingdom, it will be given to you. If it pleases the king, replied Esther, 
if it, if it pleases the king, replied Esther, let the king, together with Haman, come today to a banquet that I have prepared for him. Bring Haman at once, the king said, so that we may do what Esther asked. Family, I believe that we are in a significant time. Bryson touched on this right now. Man, everybody hates everybody. We are in a significant time in our nation, but also in our ministry, and I believe that there comes a time in every man and woman's life where we must choose. What kind of legacy do we want to leave? What do we do when it feels as though all hell is breaking loose? We know that we're called to act, but what is our next step? The first thing that we have to remember is this, God is sovereign. God is sovereign. This is not some cliche Christianese statement. Make no mistake, God is still on the throne. He rules and he reigns. He has all power and all authority over all things. God sees us exactly where we are. He's intimately acquainted with us, but he doesn't just see us where we are. He knows where he's taking us and he knows what he is doing. Nothing takes God by surprise, not even the gas prices. God is not up in heaven wringing his hands together trying to come up with a plan. He is sovereign. He has a plan. God is working in the midst of the chaos and his plans and purposes will be fulfilled even when you don't see them. You know, the most interesting thing about the book of Esther is that God's name is not mentioned once throughout the entire book. Have you ever had those moments? where it felt as though you're begging and you're pleading and you're praying and you're fasting, but no matter what you do, it feels as though God is silent. He's absent. That's what's happening here in this text. At a glance, it looks as though God is absent, but yet he is moving throughout the entire story. His fingerprints are all over it. None of this was by chance. It was all orchestrated by a sovereign God who does have a plan even when you don't see it. Some of you need to be reminded tonight, God has not abandoned you. The same God that hung all the stars in the sky, the same God who has ruled throughout all of history is the same God who not only sees you, but he loves you. You were made by him and for him. The same God that's moving in Esther's story is moving in yours. God is sovereign. The second thing we have to remember tonight is this. God is intentional. Esther had to recognize that she had been given a divine position, but that doesn't mean that she wasn't afraid. She had every reason to be afraid. She was facing death. Everyone knew for her to approach the king without being summoned meant that she would be executed. The king hasn't even seen her in 30 days. Now, I don't know about you, but that doesn't sound like a very solid marriage. Can you imagine not seeing your spouse for 30 days and now her cousin Mordecai, what he's asked her to do is basically risk her life for the sake of her own people. She could have remained silent. She could have stayed indifferent. She could have enjoyed the comforts and pleasure of the palace. She could have just tried to save herself and hope for the best. You're in my thoughts and prayers. But how could she sit idly by and watch the destruction of her people? God has intentionally placed both Mordecai and Esther where they are on purpose, for a purpose. Mordecai was a lot like us. He didn't know his future. 
But one thing Mordecai did know was his history. Mordecai knew that God had always been faithful to keep the promises of his people. Yet Mordecai had to choose to go be a voice for the voiceless and plead with Esther to act. In the same way, Esther had to choose. She had to face her fear head on. You see, faith is not the absence of fear. Faith is choosing to press forward in spite of fear, trusting that the one that has called you is able to keep his promises. God is intentional. You are where you are right now for a purpose. See, Esther didn't realize it at the time, but she wasn't just being thrown into a harem. She was being positioned to save a nation, yet she still had to choose. We have to choose. I'm going to tell you something that uh, isn't shared very often. We are not promised an easy life. Following Jesus does not make us exempt. We're not promised comfortable or convenient. Following Jesus is always going to cost you something. In fact, it's going to cost you your entire life, not just the comfortable, convenient little pieces. Jesus said it like this in Luke 9. He said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves. Take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. You see, this was a pivotal moment in Esther's life. God had intentionally positioned her in the palace for such a time as this. What God had planned for her was bigger than just herself. But for her to be obedient to what God had called her to, she was going to have to lay down the kingdom of self. And the truth is she found her life the moment she laid it down. Now, I don't know about you, but when I first came to Jesus, I was just so amazed that he would even want someone like me. I was just thankful to be in the room. But if I could be honest with you, I absolutely had no faith that God could ever use someone like me. Surely I was exempt because I had done far too much. And I'll never forget walking into the darkest place imaginable. I didn't walk into a palace, I walked into a prison. And I had one plan. Keep your head down and your mouth shut. Just do the time and stay alive. But something began to happen while I was there. See, I began to get into the word of God and it came to life because it is alive and active. It's sharper than a double-edged sword and it began to shift some things on the inside of me. It began to transform me from the inside out and God began to break my heart for the women that was all around me. Now, I had no idea what to do with this. So I began to pray. I began to pray and God began to move. And I'll never forget this moment. I'll never forget a few days later, a young woman named Rachel comes up to me and she says this. She says, why are you here and why are you always smiling? I said, Rachel, I've been in prison my whole life, but Jesus has set me free. And now that I am free, these walls cannot contain it. And Rachel began to weep and she said, can he do the same for me? Rachel became the first woman that I ever led to Jesus. God is intentional. The truth is I would go back there, I would do that time all over again for the life of just that one woman. God is intentional. You are where you are right now for a purpose. He wants to use you. He uses all things. He even uses the broken things. He can take that place of pain and transform it into a place of purpose. God is calling us to something that's bigger than ourselves. 
If the dreams that you have for your life only revolve around you, then they are too small. God wants to shatter our small expectations so that we would take our eyes off of ourselves and out into the broken world around us. We need more than just thoughts and prayers. We are called to be a people of action. God is sovereign. He is intentional. The next thing is God's timing is perfect. We're going to pick up our story in Esther chapter 5, 5 through 8. So the king and Haman went to the banquet Esther had prepared. As they were drinking wine, the king asked Esther again, now what is your petition? It'll be given to you. What is your request? Even up to half the kingdom, it will be granted. If the king regards me with favor and if it pleases the king to grant my petition and fulfill my request, let the king and Haman come tomorrow to the banquet I will prepare for them and then I will answer the king's question. So we don't know why Esther delayed. Maybe she lost her nerve. Maybe this was God's wisdom, yet it's here in the midst that we see this unseen, sovereign, intentional God working throughout the story, and his timing is perfect. Because Haman left that banquet feeling pretty good about himself. I mean, why would he not feel good about himself? He was the only other person invited. That must mean he's special. And as he leaves and he's all puffed up, guess who he runs into on the street? Mordecai that man that won't bow down. Haman becomes enraged all over again, and so he comes up with another plan. You know what he did? He built this large stake, and he planned to have Mordecai impaled on it the next day. Now, this is the part of the story where it looks as though it is hopeless. This is the part of the story where it feels like this is it, it's the end. Esther has missed it, she wasted too much time. But what I've discovered is that many times what you perceive as a denial is just a delay. God's timing is perfect. God is moving. He is working. God works all things together for good. While you're waiting, God is moving, and he's even keeping people up at night. Because it just so happens that the king couldn't sleep that night. And it just so happens that he asked that the royal chronicles be read to him. And then it just so happens that the story that was read to him was a story about Mordecai and how Mordecai had saved the life of the king. You see, the king had forgotten about Mordecai, but God had not forgotten and his timing is perfect. The next day, Haman comes into the palace, and he's ready to request Mordecai be put to death, but before he can even get the words out of his mouth, the king orders that Mordecai be honored. Haman now has to take Mordecai throughout the city on a horse so everybody can honor him. This is the pivot moment in the story. This is where everything begins to change because God is sovereign. He's intentional. His timing is perfect. But the best news of all is God specializes in reversals. He can turn it around. Let's finish the story. Esther chapter 7, 1 through 10. It's a lot. Y'all ready? Y'all are quiet. I said, are y'all ready? All right. So the king and Haman went to Queen Esther's banquet. 
And as they were drinking wine on the second day, the king asked again, Queen Esther, what is your petition? It will be given to you. What is your request? Even up to half the kingdom, it will be granted. And then Queen Esther answered, if I have found favor with you, your majesty, and if it pleases you, grant me my life. This is my petition. And spare my people. This is my request. For I and my people have been sold to be destroyed, killed and annihilated. If we had merely been sold as male and female slaves, I would have kept quiet because no such distress would justify disturbing the king. King Xerxes asked Queen Esther, who is he? Where is he? The man who has dared to do such a thing. Esther said, an adversary and enemy, this vile Haman. Then Haman was terrified before the king and queen. The king got up in a rage and left his wine and went out to the palace garden. But Haman, realizing that the king had already decided his fate, stayed behind to beg Esther for his life. Just as the king returned from the palace garden to the banquet hall, Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was reclining. The king exclaimed, will he even molest the queen while she is in the house with me? As soon as the word left the king's mouth, they covered Haman's face. Then Harbona, one of the eunuchs attending the king, said, you know what? A pole reaching the height of 50 cubits stands by Haman's house. He had it set up for Mordecai, who spoke up to help the king. Then the king said, impel him on it. So they impelled Haman on the pole that he had set up for Mordecai, and then the king's fury subsided. God specializes in reversals. No matter how hopeless the situation may seem, God can and will turn it around. It is not too late. What the enemy meant to use to harm you, God will use to bring the salvation of many. The very thing that I thought would be the end of my life is the thing that God transformed into a platform to declare his glory. God specializes in reversals. He can change any situation. But I want you guys to notice this. Notice how it happens. It doesn't happen through some miraculous intervention. How does God accomplish this? Through his people. See, this is the story where God seems absent. His people are in exile. Just to be honest, they've been flat out unfaithful. Does it mean that God is done with his people? Does it mean that God has abandoned his promises? The book of Esther tells us, no. God can and will work through any mess. He uses ordinary, imperfect, unqualified people to bring about his plans and his purposes. The question is, will you be willing? Will you be willing to trust God's character and his promises even when you don't see him moving? And here's the good news. It doesn't matter how bad things get. God is committed to redeeming his world, but he wants to use you to bring it about. God specializes in reversals. The gospel tells us this. You see, the gospel message is the story of a palace and the one who gave it up. 
Jesus is king with all power and all authority, yet he stepped down. He left that palace. He stepped down into our brokenness and into our mess. He took on our sin and our suffering and our shame. Jesus didn't say, if I perish. Jesus said, when I perish, I give my life as a ransom for many. He willingly laid down his life so that we might have life, so that we could be brought into the ultimate palace. This is the greatest reversal. And we're all like Esther. We love to, to think we're Esther, right? But we're also Haman. We're also King Xerxes. The grace of God is that we don't get what we deserve. But the truth is, we're all orphaned and outcast. Jesus exchanged his life for ours, and then he takes these broken pieces and he weaves them into this beautiful tapestry of grace. See, the gospel message isn't just a story about salvation. It's about restoration, the reversal. God wants to rewrite your stories tonight. He gives beauty instead of ashes. He gives gladness instead of sorrow. He gives praise instead of despair. How do we respond? We don't need any more social media warriors. There's enough. Yes, we speak out against injustice. Yes, we pray. But we need more than thoughts and prayers. We need more than protests. It's going to take more than new legislation. See, the world is crying out for hope, and you have the answer. God is calling you right now. There are people all around this city that are living in darkness. They are spiritually dead. The death warrant has been signed. How can we sit idly by and do nothing? Will our prayers turn into action? Would we begin to share real hope and real life to a world that is dying? We have been given a mission, church. I pray that God would begin to break our heart for the things that breaks his. What breaks God's heart? People. We cannot remain silent. If there was ever a time that our world needed restoration, it's now. How does God want to accomplish it? Through you. We are his ambassadors. God is making his appeal through us. Here's the good news. If God can use someone like me in a prison, he can use you at your workplace. If God can use someone like Esther, Against all odds, though her age and her gender and her culture made her seem powerless and invisible, if he can use her, he can use you. He used this one woman to bring about the deliverance of an entire nation. Ultimately, her people were saved, making a way for the true deliverer, Jesus, to come, all because Esther said yes Right now, the world is asking, where is God? I hear this on a college campus every day. If God is, if he exists, if he's real, where is he? But you know what I believe God is asking? He's saying, church, where are you? This is a call to action tonight. How do we respond? 
We preach the gospel on every campus, in every workplace, in every daycare, in the line at Starbucks. We preach the gospel in every city and every nation. There is no plan B, you're it. God is calling you. How will you respond? Can I pray for you? If you can, you can stand. Father, we thank you that you are sovereign. You are intentional. That every person that's in this room has been placed where they are on purpose for purpose. God, you're never late. You're always right on time, and God, you specialize in reversals. God, the people in this city desperately need a reversal. God, as we think about who you are, I'm reminded of Isaiah. When he stands in your presence, and he falls to his face because the glory of it all is just too much. And in that moment, Isaiah realizes how small and insignificant he really is, how sinful, how unequipped, how powerless. He says, woe to me, I am an unclean man and I live amongst an unclean people. But it was even in that very moment, God, where you were crying out, who can I call? Who will go for us? God, I pray that today, you would break our hearts. God, I pray that courage would rise up, that our conviction would turn into courage, and that our resolve would be marked by steps of faith to say, here am I, Lord. Send me. Open our eyes, God, that we might share your hope to a world that is lost and dying. In Jesus' name, amen.